welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. Welcome. I'm Bobby, and I am one of the pastors on the Commons team. I'm very happy to be here in Inglewood with you this morning on this long weekend. Happy family long weekend, everyone. I did want to highlight, again, our Ash Wednesday service coming up in like a week and a half. And if you're thinking, what? Like, how can it be Lent already? Know that this is actually kind of how you should feel. Ash Wednesday should feel like a surprise, as the themes of Lent are unexpected interruptions in our everyday lives. The themes are mortality and decay and feeling afraid. Ash Wednesday liturgy literally marks us with this reminder of our frailty. And I love how real and raw the beginning of Lent is, and I love how we actually welcome children in this service with us. Just this week, my four-year-old niece asked my sister this question. It was kind of troubling, but also so interesting. She said, when you die, will I die too? Like my little heart broke when my sister texted me this. So yes, of course, we welcome children of all ages into our Ash Wednesday service and all through Lent. We are really ready for that. So remember, Ash Wednesday happening February 26th at our Kensington Parish, and I really hope that you can make it. Now, I'm really curious how many of you were at our team night just over a week ago. I knew it was going to be like pretty low over here. Scott put his hand up, so thank you, Scott, for showing up. Well, team nights exist to give volunteers a space to grow as individuals and teams and as part of the larger commons community. And the last team night was all about self-care. And we assembled what we called a self-care panel with the pros, and I hosted the panel. And in the middle of the conversation, I told a little story about a time when I got self-care wrong. You want to hear it? Yeah, you do, right? So a couple of months ago, I decided to get a facial. Now, I don't normally get facials, but I have friends who love facials, and it's a profound act of self-care for them. So I thought, you know, while I'm doing all of this thinking about team night, I'll just go and get a facial. So I did. And I hated it. I hated it. I was annoyed the entire time. I spent more money than I wanted to. And when I got home, I talked to slash at my husband about the facial until he very politely interrupted me and said, Bobby, you have been complaining about this for about an hour. So what is going on here? So I did a little self-reflection and I realized that, you know what, it's okay. Facials are just not for me. And I also got thinking, you can do a good thing, like a nice thing, and still have a terrible time. Maybe that's how some of us have felt about this letter of Romans in the New Testament. Like, maybe it is good for others, but it just hasn't been that good for you. Well, we really hope that this like multi-year trek through 
Romans has given you this, maybe a bit at least, of a fresh imagination for Romans and also a fresh imagination for Paul. Admittedly, I am still working on this, kind of like my own self-care practice, but every time I dive in and I do the work, I am deeply rewarded with a new lesson about myself and this faith tradition that I call my home. So guess what? You don't have to be so afraid of Paul. And you don't have to be afraid of Romans. Romans makes all of this room for difference and paints a cosmic picture about the work of Christ. So today, we are in the very last chapter of Romans, chapter 16. It's like the finish line. But before we cross it, I'm going to introduce you to some very incredible people. So I am calling this sermon, Who Wants to Be Paul's Valentine? And we will talk about sweethearts and home churches, to Junia be true, holy kisses, and the bad and the beautiful. But before we get through all of that, please join me as we quiet ourselves a bit and pray together. Our loving God, as we come to the end of Romans, maybe we think of some endings, finishes, even postscripts in our own lives. Maybe we go back to a big moment when we worked so hard for something and finally achieved it. Maybe we are drawn to just a small moment when an ending just kind of appeared and we knew it was time to move on, maybe move on in a relationship, maybe move on from a community, maybe move on in our work or a pursuit. Jesus, you are with us in these endings. And while it can be hard to move on to what is next, may we trust in the lessons that we learn along the way. May we stay open to love in all of its inventive forms. And may we find the wisdom that we need. Holy Spirit, you are here, and we give thanks. Amen. So, do you ever have a dream come true, only right in the middle of the moment, you realize, I didn't even know I had a dream like this? Well, here's how that happened for me. I mentioned the self-care panel at the team night just a moment ago, and that's where this kind of little dream of mine came true. Like, I knew I was right where I wanted to be. First, I was in charge, and I love that. Second, I was hosting a panel, a panel, you guys. So I kind of felt like Oprah, and I also love that. And third, I had assembled three very wise guests to talk about the subject of self-care, and I thought, these voices can be trusted. And I am so thrilled to introduce them to the people who serve at Commons. So the panelists were, Alan Rosales, an artist and art therapist here in Calgary, as well as a longtime personal friend. 
Trina Frank, a psychologist with a thriving private practice and a bunch of ministry experience, and Nick Etheridge Calder, a coach also here in Calgary who works with individuals and organizations around leadership. Now, as I say those names and those descriptions, I'm actually doing what Paul is doing in Romans 16. There are these 26 names in Romans 16, and they all mean something to Paul. He's intent on making sure the people in Rome know each other and welcome each other and learn from each other. In fact, the health of Rome's home churches is tied to the health of churches beyond Rome. As Paul prepares for this mission to Spain, he backs up his reputation with this diverse group of people that the Romans should know. So let's start with the very first person on his list, this woman, Phoebe. So the text reads, I command to you, or I commend to you, commend, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Cancray. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a, way in a way worthy of God's people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been benefactor of many people, including me. Now, just like my earlier introductions of this self-care panelist, Paul uses two details to introduce people, of course, a name, and then titles as descriptions. And let me add this. If you have been around the church for a long time, you might know people just love to look at what Paul has to say about women in general, often ignoring the context of his letters. But for some like really funny reason, people don't spend much time looking at what Paul has to say about women in particular, like the women that he identifies by name. And actually, that's not funny. It's not funny at all, is it? It's not funny. So of the 26 people that Paul names here, about a third of these names are women. Women with names and titles of leadership. And of the three categories of leadership, deacon, co-worker, apostle, women are named in every category. So let's look at the titles Paul uses for Phoebe. Phoebe is called deacon, benefactor, and right at the start, sister. And the Greek word for deacon is diakonos. And again, if you come from a church world, you might think that deacon is something like a minister in training. But this system of like junior minister just doesn't exist this early in the church. The truth of the matter is that Paul uses the term diakonos for himself in 1st and 2nd Corinthians and for Jesus in Romans 15. And in the early church, diakonos plays two parts. It means both servant and overseer or leader. And Paul's reliance on Phoebe to be his voice in Rome, to help the hearers of this letter understand his words, and to trust her because she has proven herself as a leader in another city, conveys both service and competency. 
Another title for these, another title used in this verse, in verse two actually, is this Greek word prostatis. And some translations use the word and translate it as helper or assistant or like cute baby kitten. <laughs> Kidding, of course, about the cute baby kitten. But prostatis is best translated as patron or what the NIV uses here, benefactor. And the Roman world was marked by the patronage system. That means that those further up in this ladder make gifts to those further down in exchange for honor. And these further up the ladder patrons include women. And we often think that women of this time were excluded from public life. But scholar Beverly Gaventa notes that there is considerable evidence to explain that what was law and what was practice were just simply not the same thing. What we know is that Phoebe was able to travel to Rome with her own money. And she's meant to go on from there to set up this mission for Paul in Spain. So this woman gets things done. Now let's think about the third title, sister. And this might be my favorite part. When Paul says sister, he doesn't mean that they're related, of course. Paul is using the social kinship language of early Christians. And you want to know what it conveys? Solidarity. It conveys solidarity, which is unity. It's mutual support. It's harmony. Paul trusts Phoebe, and Paul actually trusts himself. He makes all this room. He holds back. He steps aside. And as they work together, Phoebe is given all of this agency. Now, here's what Chrysostom, an early church father, has to say about Phoebe a few centuries after Paul. He writes this, for the women of those days were more spirited than lions sharing with the apostles their labors of the gospel's sake. In this way, they went traveling with them and also performed all other ministries. And Chrysostom also says that it is no slight thing to be called a sister of Paul. Now, Phoebe is not the only spirited lion named here in Romans 16. There are others, and no two listings are the same. One woman is named independently a fellow worker, Mary. Some women are paired with men, Prisca, and with Aquila. Other women are paired with other women. There's Tryphena and Tryphosa. Then there's Rufus's mother. We bless her. But of course, we're not just interested in the names of women in Romans 16, because there is way more diversity in these house churches than just among women. Though, like, let's give it up for the women too long ignored. So when you dig through the range of names in Romans 16, you will find people who were enslaved and people who were free. You will find people who were Jewish and people who were Gentile. There are more and more women and more and more and more and more and more men, but you know, there they all are. So Paul raises the bar of togetherness across vast differences. Like how does he do it? I have thought a lot about this long list of names and what it means for our understanding of Paul, and I've settled on this. Romans 16 
is a case study in empathy. Paul has let people with strange names and varied life experiences into his heart. Don't forget, Paul used to murder people like this. And now he cannot get enough of how beautiful and particular they are. Paul knows them by name. And he frames them with these titles of closeness and authority. And he sees them for what they have to offer. But here's what happens when you don't practice empathy like Paul. You hurt people. I know. I have been hurt. A long, long time ago, I worked at a church, a different church, and the leaders used to say to me, Bobby, you're so talented. Bobby, you are so gifted. Bobby, here's a big raise because you're doing such good work, but Bobby, you can never preach here. And Bobby, you can never be a senior leader here. And I thought, well, is it because I've failed morally? No, because I had not failed morally. And I thought, is it because I'm not smart enough? And I thought, no, that can't be because I crushed it in grad school. Is it because I'm not qualified? Nope, not that either. Because male colleagues with lesser qualifications were surpassing me in title. So what was it then? Simply this. I was not Bobby to these people. I was a woman. And they just followed different rules about women in leadership. And that hurt me. Of course, it also turned me into a very fiery feminist who still slays at ministry, so there's that. <laughs> but seriously, I am not the only one who gets hurt like this. This past week, when I heard that Pope Francis, I feel a bit emotional about this. <laughs> I grew up Catholic, maybe that's why. <laughs> decided against letting married men become priests to address a shortage of priests in South America's Amazon region, and that he also decided against allowing women to be deacons second to priests in the Catholic Church structure. When I heard all of this, I knew what I was hearing. A failure of empathy. A failure of empathy is the failure to take in another person's lived experience. It is the failure to feel along with other people. It is the failure to sense another person's experience in a bodily way. The Pope failed to see these people who need priests. And the Pope failed to see women who are educated and gifted and equal in every way. And the Pope failed to see Phoebe and Prisca. And quite frankly, he failed to see the Apostle Paul. And the worst is that he joined with those who failed to see this woman, Junia, in the text. Junia. You might be like, who the heck is Junia? Well, I want to tell you about Junia. 
Verse 7 reads, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews, who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. In the history of biblical interpretation, our Junia has seen some things. For several centuries, Junia was translated as Junius, said to refer to the short form of Junianus, a man's name. Though it is known that this didn't happen in English translations until 1833, which is just like yesterday, you guys. Now, why would Junia be swapped out for a man in the 14th century, and why would a masculine version of the name be popularized in the text by Luther in the 16th century? The reason has a lot to do with this word apostle. Basically, the dude said a woman just cannot be an apostle. And slowly but surely, leadership in the church made all these shifts to, away from Paul's egalitarian values in favor of exclusionary ones, more in line with dominant culture. And honestly, with time and a bigger hold on power, it's just hard for these old guys to imagine Junia any other way. But there's this recent scholarship that looks into the historical occurrences of the name and finds that indeed, Junia was a popular woman's name in the ancient world. Archaeologists have found over 250 inscriptions of Junia as a woman and no traces. No traces of a masculine form of the name. But back to this word apostle, which means sent one. Isn't it true that there were no women apostles in the original 12? Well, New Testament scholar Amy Peeler explains that Paul used the term more broadly, pun intended. In 1 Corinthians, Paul uses apostle to mean someone who has seen the resurrected Christ and is given an apostolic role. So while Paul isn't one of the original 12, remember that, he claims the title of apostle for himself. But make no mistake, not all early Christians accepted Paul's claim of apostleship. That's why Paul goes on and on about it. And in his defense, Paul argues that an apostle is anyone prepared to suffer for the call of Christ. He says over and over that he is that person. And the term expands from there. Paul shares the title with Junia and Andronicus because like him, they are leaders willing to get locked up for the work of Christ. And that's apostle enough for Paul. And you know, all of this talk about Junia and this rewriting of her story really has me thinking about connections with our stories. Like maybe you know a thing or two about being rewritten, about the truth of who you are being denied or squashed or manipulated. Maybe someone wants you to be more than you can be, and you are carrying the unreasonable weight of a demand like that to be a faultless friend, to be this like perfect partner, to be a harder worker. 
And you know deep down that you do not have it in you to cover all of that. Or maybe somebody wants less than you can be. And it kind of makes the life like drain out of you to think about how you are being passed by or not seen or not believed. And that's a burden that you carry. And you have to fight so hard just to take up some space and to feel secure when you take a stand. And you know what the story of Junia, an apostle, has to say about all that? The truth about you can resurface. Sometimes you just need the right people to dig you up and like dust you off and take a good long look at who you really are and what's really going on for you. At our self-care panel, I had this final question for the panelists. I asked them to talk about the role of self-care when a person is in crisis or sick or injured. And we all know how hard it is to practice self-care when we are so far from our best selves. It takes a lot of energy for that. Sometimes you just feel like, I don't have it in me. Well, all of the panelists said brilliant things. And just as I was about to move on, Al, the art therapist, said, I have something else to add. Al said that self-care, when you are struggling, can look like intimacy and vulnerability. It looks like trusting your community and letting them in on the real things that are going on for you. It means risking being seen. This is where Paul actually goes with these greetings and just after. He goes to this place of intimacy, intimacy as care. Check it out. Paul writes, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. Now, it's easy to think that Romans is all about theology, like theology, theology, theology. But chapter 16 reminds us that Romans is about life together. Romans is about ethics, how we care, how we take down barriers, how we respect the needs of others. But there is a shadow side to these kisses in the ancient world. If you were a slave or someone of lesser social standing, you could be sexualized without your consent. A master could force himself on you and you would have no recourse. Paul is saying that the strength of communities in Rome is centered on their soft intimacy. It's trust and protection and togetherness. And as it turns out, Al, the art therapist's invitation to care for yourself through vulnerable relationships in community is exactly what Paul is encouraging at the close of the letter. The cultural piece to be aware of here is that in the first century, people saw themselves embedded in their social spaces. If you belong to my class, or if you don't, if you don't belong to my class, if you don't belong to my family, if you don't belong to my station, then I don't have a relationship with you. 
But Paul provocatively expands interpersonal ties, Jewish and Gentile worshipers, people who are slaves and people who are free, women and men, all belong in one family, the family of God. And Paul writes to these communities to say to them, kiss across communities. Remember that your small group is not alone. And this intimacy across distance really could heal like so much in our world. It's about holding out the question, what do you need to whoever is standing right in front of you? One of my favorite theologians, Sally McFaig, talks about intimacy as aesthetic distance. And aesthetic distance means that you look at another person, you see another person, but you don't overtake them. You don't like devour them. And intimacy is aesthetic distance. Intimacy is holy kisses, is not hypersexual. It's love that takes into consideration the freedom of bodies and how your freedom should never diminish the freedom of another. This kind of bodily welcome, it is about embrace. And as someone who is not a big hugger, embrace is about whom we hold in our hearts. Like, do you hold in your heart someone you don't understand? Do you hold in your heart a relationship that is way trickier than you thought it would be? Do you hold in your heart a stranger who scares you a little bit? Intimacy was not easy in Rome. Intimacy is not easy in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. We mess up intimacy all of the time. So appropriately, Paul ends Romans with a warning and a word about worship. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. And then, to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Truthfully, there are a lot of conversations about how much of this last section of Romans really belongs to Paul, and we don't have time for any of that. But what we do have time for are two very true claims. One, you and the people around you won't always get the good life right. And two, you will always have a good God to praise. Paul has reminded the churches in Rome that as marginal communities in a violent empire, they are devoted to a non-violent way of love for each other. And marginal voices matter. Listening to marginal voices keep us from overtaking each other and losing our way to the wisdom and the beauty of the divine. Everything we read in Romans is between a warning 
and doxology. It's about how we treat sibling and stranger, and then it's about what makes us praise God, what makes us think big, beautiful thoughts about the divine. Another way to say this is that empathy and wonder can keep your faith alive. Even when your life and your best laid plans don't go the way that you think they should, Paul will not actually get to Spain. Even though this love letter to the Romans was meant to prepare the churches for the mission, Paul doesn't make it. Instead, Paul will come to Rome. He will live there for a handful of years under house arrest, and he will die there during Nero's persecution. But Paul will never stop proclaiming the inclusivity of God, and we are the benefactors. We are the included ones, and we get to turn to each other, and every person who does not feel loved and say, you are. You are so loved, and you are held in the heart of God. And then we get to say, here, let me show you the way. Please join me in prayer. Loving God, to whom all hearts are open and all desires known, thank you for the ways that we can reach out and take great care with each other. May you renew the bonds of intimacy in our lives. They're fragile things. May we find ways to let go of some hurt that maybe we've held for too long. If we have insisted too hard on our own way, help us to lay some of that down. If we have a need and we don't even really know clearly like what it is, God, will you bring clarity to our minds and hearts? Expand our praise, enrich our compassion, and in all things, may we know and trust your nearness, Jesus. So Spirit of the living God, present with us now, enter the places of longing and even hurt in our lives, and heal us of all that harms us. Amen.